0: Talking Toro 63. Uh, some sad news, Rob. This might be uh, our last ever podcast because I've had a message from Joey Barton and he says, because we didn't play for Toro, we've got no right to do this podcast. Um, so we better go out in style, mate. It's. Uh...
1: I think that's... Um, yeah, I, I think that might be the one and only mention of Joey Barton on this podcast, preferably, mate. Um, yeah, I'd rather... Um... I'd stick pins in my <laughs> in my eyes and listen to a podcast with Jerry Barton, uh, even if he uh, in my ears, I suppose if it's a podcast. But yeah, all
0: right. Well, talking of pins in uh, something, uh, Torino at Frosinone, 0 nil, nil uh, coming off the high for us anyway with the three 0 win over Atalanta. I I didn't think this game was as bad as some people made out. Um, it was sunny. down in Frosinone. Thought the stadium looked. We weren't at the better. game.
1: We weren't at the game, Peter. So the, the weather was but, <laughs> relatively, uh, relatively, uh, relatively like didn't matter.
0: Did I, did I not tell you? I, I went back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. I thought it was nice to see somewhere sunny on a on a kind of lazy uh, late Sunday morning. But yeah, the stadium was quite yeah, you know, it was quite a good crowd for a, quite a nice little stadium by Italian standards. Felt like a felt like a kind of proper match in some senses um and a point i think it go away from it it's one of those points where sometimes you draw a match and you think that's a very disappointing result and then a few weeks later spe- like you take the bologna game that we lost if we'd drawn that um we would have gone into this weekend i think well possibly level with bologna um but above quite like two or three other teams as well. There's, these points here and there do make a difference. And I think it's up to us now to go, if we go and beat um, Empoli and Udinese at home, this is a good point. If we mess up, uh, which we may have the tendency to do, or we do have the tendency to do against Empoli and Udinese, I didn't this is a less good point. But um, I think personally, Trino definitely ended a better team and were the team looking to win the game. But there's, a fair bit, I guess, to talk about before um, the last 20 minutes or so.
1: Yeah, I think it was, it, I echo the the sort of thoughts on the stadium as well. I think just a Italian team who have their own stadium, which has been been built in sort of recent times without a running track around it, just creates that sort of feel for, um, yeah, it looks like one of the stadiums you like to visit and um, yeah, made it a good, a, a good watch in the early sort of especially first half there was, because there was a bit of chaos on the instance that we'll go on to talk talk about there was a bit of a, a lull sort of probably from the sort of first 15 minutes 20 minutes of the, first, of the second half and then the end was it was basically all Toro um, I yeah I totally agree with, with your points it would be one of those games where we might be kicking ourselves we didn't just show that sort of Determination to try and get a winner, and maybe about ten minutes earlier. I think if the game had gone on for a little bit longer, we probably would have found that goal, um, because they they seem to be quite visibly tiring. But given their excellent home record, I don't think a point uh, away from home is a, a bad result at all. Uh, and they probably and, and chances created and saves that the keepers had to make. Then Vanya made a lot more more saves than uh, than their keeper had to. So I think it's probably a, probably a fair result.
0: Yeah, maybe on chances created, I guess the referee had quite a big influence on the game. So it was less than 10 minutes in. Iono had made a foul, what, 90 seconds earlier. I thought he was a bit unlucky in that first yellow. Uh, I Was it was it on Bellanova, the first yeah, one? Yeah, I, I think they both were, yeah. Um, I don't think Bellanova was getting to the ball and then he slipped. And the ref may have been a bit eager. To, ref probably regretted giving that yellow card because the second one was a much clearer yeah. yellow card for me. Why then the ref? Yeah, I I I don't know why he didn't. But if he'd made that decision based on it being too early in the game, or he had some regrets over the first. I, yellow, I do. I, I mean, w- one one wrong. Yeah, you know, if you even if you got it feels like he got the first yellow wrong, that shouldn't excuse the fact that the player should have been sent off.
1: I do wonder whether it. it was just literally the time between uh the fouls, literally like ninety seconds. He hasn't even really give. Probably hasn't put his uh put his notebook away before sort of potentially getting it out again. Had that challenge potentially, even if they'd been in quick succession in the first half on maybe 12 and then 26 minutes. I think that would have maybe been a little bit more uh, of a chance of giving him the red card I kind not of think that, like I say, it's in such quick succession. He's almost wanted to um, give himself any reasons to not make the decision. Um, it's yeah, Like I say, it's one of those decisions which just never seems to go in Torre's favour. Um obviously Kyra came out with his sort of refereeing statistics and this is another one, which has probably gone against him, but then potentially sort of five, 10, 20 minutes later, we've had a decision, which has gone in our favour. So whether, whether that was in the back of the referee's mind that he'd obviously got away with, with one, I'm not so sure. Um, because obviously, if uh, only awarded it, well, originally not awarded a penalty, although it did look, I, I thought live, it looked like a penalty. uh, uh was, um makes a makes a meal of it and that d- d- goes down theatric- theatrically. Um but like it's quite a clear uh, movement from Bongiorno to pull him backwards. And yeah, the only thing that I think saves him is that is that foul in the in the build up. And if it wasn't for that then I th- I think it would have been they would have given a penalty. It was a little bit strange that they went to the, the monitor for that decision because of, you'd have thought a foul in the build up would have been clear enough for the uh, VAR to make that judgment call without calling the referee over to see two calls and I don't understand why they didn't they did it in the reverse order surely the first image to show would have been the foul uh, because then if you think the first is the foul you don't really need to show them the very incident
0: Yeah the whole thing felt like a complete waste of time, it felt like he hadn't also that it was back of his mind then was not given the red card um, Bon Giordi was a bit lucky it was a kind of Bit of a naive thing to do. Um, Kyle George, who didn't play particularly well, um, as you said, made a meal of it. That's probably what the referee saw. But yeah, I think it's one of those ones where everyone, well, the referee and Torino were thankful that they went back and found uh, something to get, let them all off the hook. Um, but yeah, otherwise, yeah, I mean, for us to know that they're quite lively, they had pace that exposed our defence in the first half an hour. Um, then I think, yeah, a bit like a kind of Bottle of sparkling water that had been left open, I thought they were a bit flat in the especially in the second half um and I think Torino could have done more to win the game with a bit more quality. The corners were just so frustrating in that Illich was swinging in some fairly decent ones from the right hand side on his left foot, but I don't lazzaro's ones were were very poor, and even before then you got voivoda taking corners. Why could Illich not come out? And do an at swinger from the other side, or yeah, you know, some people don't like short corner routines, but I think statistically they've been proved to be a bit more effective than than just throwing the ball in again. It's just the predictability of it if you're just doing the same thing on each corner, it's a lot easier to defend against, and so we just we just kind of had lots of opportunities there to do something a bit different um and that was very disappointed, and then I just felt the subs, yeah, it all came on ten minutes too late. Um, as a side note, Gigi, I thought was exceptional when he came on. Just it allowed us to play a bit uh, higher up the pitch because of his pace. Uh, and then the triple sub, uh, I mean, Voivodo, Maybe we'll give him a break this week because he made his hundredth appearance for for Torino. I mean, we should all we sh- we should all give ourselves a pat on the back for uh, yeah,
1: enduring 100 those, those yeah enduring <laughs> those hundred appearances.
0: But yeah, I mean Lazzaro was an improvement um, apart from the, the dead ball situations. And then, again, don't really want to get into the Denbasek situation, but Denbasek looked pretty inhibited to me when he came on. Like he didn't want, almost like he didn't want the limelight. It felt a bit like he was just quite shy on the right-hand side. He didn't shoot when he should have shot. Never took the mat- his man on him. Mean, he's been brought on for pace and never went on the outside. And again, if you never go on the outside, you just always coming on the inside, it's so easy to defend against. Um I thought I thought Caramo did did pretty well myself when he came on and maybe I'd like to see him in one of the upcoming games around the Zapata just to see. I think he just got an unpredictability that um and sometimes an ed product as well. I just think sometimes Sanabra and Velazic playing in those
1: positions were were a bit similar. They they already already almost combined straight away, Zapata and Caramo within sort of thirty seconds of him coming on, um, played through ball and, and gave Zapata probably his best chance of the game. Um and the keeper made a good save. And and then you also looking back at the on the highlights of the, the Atalanta game, you almost forget that uh Zapata's third goal a uh, second goal comes about from a, a nice little lo- nice little bit of skill from Caramo. So I think it's definitely a um an option to have that rotation. I don't think Cenabri's played particularly well I know some of the Pelle gave him quite a high scoring in the uh, in the game against Atalanta, but other than the penalty, I didn't think he was particularly impressive. Um, and yeah, I think you're right; he, he's almost trying to play too much as a uh, backup to Zapato, the commentator who I think we both agreed did quite a good job and um, was a, a nice, a pleasant, pleasant uh, change from from Mister Dempsey. Um, he, he sort of made reference to the fact that they'd we're getting on quite well. Um, yeah, I think somebody mentioned in the, in the pre-match press conference, Zapata and Sanabria, we're, we're sort of getting up, get on very well off the field and obviously both South Americans and and maybe Sanabria is trying too hard, maybe just to try and play for Zapata rather than playing on his own. He's, he's dropping back a little bit deep, but when you've got Vlasic in the team, that's also what he's doing. I think Caramello is somebody who can run beyond um, Zapata rather than just sort of, uh, play sort of drop deeper yeah, and sort of look at, at creating the space there. Uh, I think actually because of Zapata's just strength, his area, ability, he could even win a win, it, especially against defences. And you'd imagine Empley and Udinese are probably going to sit quite deep, even just a little bit of a, a long ball, and uh, knock on it and then Karamo can run in behind. And that might be a, a route for success in the next couple of games.
0: I think the other thing for this game was, Uh, we had quite a few debates about this with the people in the the Richie versus Illich situation it's a bit again you can't base this on one performance where Richie's coming back Um, but we were a lot better when Tamezi moved into midfield not just because of Tamezi but I just think Richie and Illich they have a tendency to do the same thing and until one of them is I don't know maybe prepared to sacrifice uh, whether it's Richie who needs to play a bit deeper um but Linetti and Tamezai give us a bit more physicality in there and a platform for the other one to, to kind of get on the ball and play a bit more. I felt, yeah, we were And well the other thing is they're playing in a, essentially in a two man midfield now and not in a three, which exposes the problem a little bit more. So I'm not sure if we'll see a situation in January where Toro cash in on one of these two players. Um whether the Lazio uh still being in the Champions League, Sarri was very keen on Richie. And whether Torino now looking at it like uh, possibly it's a, a player who's less compatible with the project, but they were talking about a project where Yurich pre-match is almost getting a bit annoyed by people asking him when he's going to sign a contract and if he's going to sign a contract. So the level of kind of project at Torino is, um, yeah, it's we we don't really know what the project is at the moment
1: anyway. Yeah, no, I think was, I was just about to say the same thing about Richie. I think we probably uh, January might be a bit of a difficult one for uh, to for Kari to sell to the the supporters. It might just be another quiet January where we maybe bring in a couple of loan signings at the end of the window, especially if we can get rid of Redonijic. But uh, definitely at the end of in the summer, probably would have earmarked Schürz to be the player who might have been sacrificed in order to sort of. Finance maybe a, a new re- rebuild for whichever manager comes in should Eurich leave, um. But obviously with share uh, shares coming in coming back from a a long term injury, probably that's gonna I mean that's not gonna be a possibility. So Richie, if if a decent amount of money is on the table, I think it'd be very difficult to turn down, especially if he's not a regular. And like you say, we, we we've got Linetti, we've got Tomaso. Tomaso probably adapted a lot better. The well, it's probably started a lot better than anybody would have imagined, and the the commentators also mentioned that there'd been interest in Tomezzo from the Premier League, which considering he's twenty nine I'm, I'm not quite sure how how sort of uh, i'm not i've not seen any of those rumours myself and, and given his age not i'm not sure whether they'd be accurate, but uh yeah, maybe that's a potential route for, for if we need some some emergency funds in january.
0: Yeah, that was surprised. The commentator though, clearly listened to the pre-match press conferences where he, he had got a lot of his stuff from, but I admit that's not not a link I'd seen. Um. So, yeah, I think going into, we've got two games pre-Christmas, so two home games, Empoli, Nudanesi. We'll talk a bit about Empoli um, in the second half of the pod. And then we have Fiorentina, um. Who I, I see ended up watching Fu- most of Fiorentina's match at Rome at start, and they were very Toro-esque uh, playing playing against repeatedly doing the same thing and unable to break down um, the nine men. Things a bit exaggerated because Lukaku did get sent off quite late in the game, but um, yeah, they were quite quite. It felt like felt like I was watching uh, a version of Toro and against Jose's version of Argentina. It was uh, yeah, not not. Not a compelling watch
1: Toro quite famously uh, struggled to to score against nine men themselves, which was Fiorentina uh, a few seasons ago. I think but might have popped up with a with a late goal, but yeah, it's probably probably about to, about time they uh they they had it on their on their foot and realized how difficult it can be there you go
0: I remember Toro winning with nine men, uh having two players sent off in the first half and winning one 0 at Verona oh, wow. in the snow. And I think Francesco Coco ended up playing like striker from left wing back position. Uh, we were one nil up, I think, with ten men or with, uh, with eleven men, and then yeah, one of those kind of uh, yeah low key epic Torino victories. Um, talking of uh, epic victories, are we going to do a bit of toropedia before we head into the break?
1: Yeah, let's go. I'm not been poorly prepared actually, so just one second. Let me just get myself ready. I'm expecting you to get this one, um oh, I think it's too difficult.
0: I'll just uh I'll just interject while you get yourself organized. We got um so pod sixty four will follow post we'll do a short one next week, post temply pre but we also have a second pod coming out next week, which will be our special edition Christmas quiz. Um You saying uh, this will be easy for me. Well let me just tell you, uh you and Mesa. Torino, frosinone they might not be the only nil-nil we have to endure <laughs> next week's quiz. Because I've set, I've set some good questions, but no, it won't be nil-nil. But uh, yeah, uh, you boys, you got a long week of research. I think.
1: I think a, a nil-nil in a quiz would be would be quite a, par- a painful watch. We might need to might need to be on uh, edited GC for that quiz, so there's not just like thirty seconds of pauses whilst we're trying to think of answers. Um, okay, so. Uh, I'll give you the years and I'll give you the teams and the appearances because I'm just nice like that. So 1994 to 1995, Regina, six appearances, zero goals. 1995 to 1996, Carpi, 30 appearances, zero goals. 1996 to 2007, Kievo, 312 appearances, six goals. 2007 to 2008, Torino, 29 appearances, one goal. 2008 to 2010, Bologna, 55 appearances, zero goals.
0: How many? Sorry. uh, So
1: 55 55 appearances, zero goals. Yeah. And then 2010 to 2011, Reggiana, uh, 10 appearances, zero goals.
0: Okay. What's well, the Chievo that did it, I think. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I felt like that might have been a bit of a
0: giveaway. Yeah, well, not, it's one of those ones where I've gone for immediately it came to my head. But uh, when we came back from Turin, you you said in Turin you'd seen 30 Toro matches. So I yeah. did have something somewhere with the, my record of Toro matches. And I think I've seen 67, uh, bearing in mind a lot of Serie B. And I think I saw this player score is only... Torino goal in a 1-1 home draw of Genoa in Serie A one of the Serie A matches um, so uh, quietly confident going into a part 2 where we may play in um, but let's play in the last goal home goal we scored against Empoli because you were there my friend
1: I <laughs> was, well, might be the worst I think I, I described it the worst goal in Torino history but Here we go. Let's see if the commentator uses the same turn of phrase. Good ball in. DiCario got something in the way. And it's crossed the line. Lukic there to celebrate. Well, it was one of those days for Torino. They couldn't score in a conventional way, but they found the net in the most curious of circumstances. Hello and welcome back to episode 2.0. (laughs) Hello <laughs> and what let's start that again. Not cutting that. Yeah, we'll just keep that in, Uh hello and welcome to part two of episode sixty three of the Talking Toro podcast. Uh, before the break I set a Toropedia Pedia teaser for uh, Peter. Uh he seemed, seemed quite confident in the answer and might have been quite poorly prepared in picking a picking the uh a player who scored his only Toro goal at a game that Peter may have attended. Uh so Peter, who was it?
0: Well, as confident as I was, I realised um, I've forgotten this player's first name. Um, it was Lanna, and then I realised my instinct was to say Marco Lanna, but Marco Lanna played for Sampdoria when they won the Scudetto, and I suddenly had a panic. I couldn't remember this player's first name, but it came to me. Uh, I think it's come to me, is it Salvatore
1: Lanna? Salvatore Lanna, correct. Yeah, I was, I was, was... Yeah, I was, I was potentially going uh, to give you a half point then if you only gave me the surname.
0: I wouldn't have been if if I yeah, if I got it wrong with a name of a the player then yeah, I would <laughs> I, I, I I would have accepted no points. But yeah, just I've just about fudged my way through that. So yeah, I was one of those kind of uh that very insipid uh, Torino teams, um uh, early Serie A teams under Cairo. He was okay, Lana, but uh, obviously had a pretty steady steady career and I saw his one goal.
1: But he looks um I, I got brief brief mentions of him uh, or brief recollections of him, sort of at um, at Toro. But uh, yeah, probably Chiavos, where he obviously spent the majority of his career, probably where he's most remembered. But yeah, he looks like a a a, Serie, a third division um, Italian footballer, really, doesn't he? It doesn't really look like he transitioned particularly well to to Chievo's sort of um, rise through the divisions.
0: That's What Kievo were, but Kievo, I mean, Kievo just had a very settled team for a number of years, and uh, uh of course, they'd he wasn't alone in making that many appearances for them because he had Palacia, who yeah. had come through the ranks at Torino and played well over 300 Serie A games for Kievo as well. So, Tillerbocky,
1: as well, does he played yeah. as many games, but
0: yeah, Tiri, Tiri Bocky at least had a career at, at, at Torino, but yeah, he was one of those. He was one of those ones we sold when we didn't have any money. Yeah, it was a bit galling losing uh, players to Kiev. We had Sorrentino as well, who um, who went across to to Kiev. But Our our friend Barone played for Kiev as well, didn't he?
1: Yes. And did Eugenio
0: did you, Eugenio Carini? Yeah, he of course yeah, he yeah. was a Kiev and came to. Torino. There was a lot of links between Kievo and Torino, and Kiev emphatically in every one of those scenarios. Um, once they got the better deal, but the player played the bet their better football at Kiev than Torino. I can't think of, I can't think of a single player in that era who did better at Torino than they did at Kiev, So, no,
1: both under weather, obviously, just the, that lack of pressure, that lack of expectation. We've spoken about before about some of the the teams in in Syria who are doing quite well uh, or have done quite well over the last couple of years. Maybe your Monzas and your your Sassuaylis presently where they're just ha- being in an environment where there isn't that pressure, whereas. At Toro, it's maybe not the same as being in one of those sort of European chasing, well, European sort of qualifying teams where if they they lose a couple of games, then it's a, a disaster. But if you even think about the last couple of weeks, where we 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 beat Atalanta, we we lose to Bologna, and Juric is getting sacked, and and then we we beat Atalanta, and, and everyone's asking about when Yurich is signing a new contract. So he's a you're in a continual state of of flux. that's never. Uh, things aren't just smooth sailing. It's, smooth sailing. it's either it's a, either going great or going, going terribly. So maybe in, in some of those smaller teams in Italian football, maybe life's a little bit easier and you can just sort of carry on with your football without getting too high or getting too low.
0: All right. Well, we were going to kind of continue on a little bit on our trip to Turin because one of the things we did, in, or I did, I don't think you did, but uh, is I bought some books back, which I kind of mentioned in last week's Pardon, I've started reading uh, the book on uh Toro d'Amsterdam, which is, uh, we did joke last week whether it would actually be about Torino's UEFA Cup running 91, 92, um, but it very much is. And it's also partially about the um, Coppa Italia winning 93. There's a brilliant, very emotive introduction by Emiliano Mondonico's daughter, Clara, who travelled with the team. She became a, I think, mascot's not right, the word, right word, but um, she was kind of very present with the team during that era. And obviously with with Mondonica having passed away a few years ago, um, she was given kind of the opportunity to write the, write the introductions to the book. But yeah, she captures very well that era. Um, and just talking a bit about that book first, it is, I've only read, there's one chapter, which is interviews with, I'd say all but four players they've interviewed. And it's absolutely fascinating um, insight into football at that time. The Torino under under Borsano, which we had that massive investment of money, uh, which ultimately led us to being bankrupt as well. Um, the Luciano Moji influence. Um, and just to cast the characters, because there are very different personality types in that team. You had the likes of the kind of nominal hard men that you had, your Brunos, your Policanos, Anonis with their kind of Tarzan and uh, nickname and Rambo nicknames etc and then you had uh, the likes of Moosey and Mark who are a lot more kind of yeah very uh, let's just say uh, clean cut professionals uh, still very noble to this day um, and then you had you know, last night I read the, the part of Walter Casagrande as well but yeah it's just very interesting what comes out is they all say that after they've beaten Real Madrid in the semi-final and these interviews are, you know, are all done kind of individually with players but yeah there's a few kind of common strands, one is that after beat real madrid they thought they would easily beat ajax in the in the final uh, they kind of under underestimated ajax especially in the first leg and then you had the kind of misfortune in the second leg and then yeah a lot of it was um i've always really liked enzo shifo as a player it was one of the reasons i kind of came attracted to being a toro fan but shifo's one of the four players not not interviewed in it yeah, a lot of it comes across. A, there is an interview in there with Mondonico, actually, but Mondonico really had a lot of issues with Shifo. and they ask every single player who the best player in that team was and they all pretty much say, or um, well, a lot of them say Lentini or Martin Vazquez and just how much Martin Vazquez uh, was was underrated as kind of the, you know, Torino buying, I'm pretty sure Martin Vazquez came from Real Madrid. But yeah. yeah, I just, you know, the kind of, players Trina were I've not read the interview with uh, Martin Vasquez yet, but yeah, it's a really, really good book without, I think one day we'll do a pod special maybe on that, on that Real Madrid and the IX games. But yeah, so it just kind of got, got us thinking and talking about books on Toro. I own 35 books on Toro um, and I've probably only scratched the surface. The thing with Toro books as well is they all have a Granada spine, pretty much. Um and we've said, you know, if you go to a bookshop, you go to your Feltrine, Feltrinelli or any of these bookshops in Italy, uh, or especially in Turin. Um, although it did take us a while to find them because they yeah, we the may have found book.
1: the only yeah we might have found the only Torre book in that bookshop um, uh, well, where that, you got well, the goalkeeper book.
0: Yeah, I think they had shelves uh, basically on the eye level of a cat. Uh, <laughs> so it, was, it was quite. They'd always hidden the I school. was just
1: I was just crawling on the floor looking like, for Peter's book. You see, that's quite an image for you. But,
0: but generally speaking, yeah, there's usually a kind of shelf of books, this kind of Granada spine, and um, so yeah, just got got us thinking. I bought the two last week, uh, and the other one I bought was on the goalkeepers, which have not started. But I did read the preface uh, because you asked me if Joe Hart would be um, one of the top twenty Toro goalkeepers. Uh, it's a slightly tenuous thing. they based they've done, they've not done a ranking on who they rate the best. They've taken. They call it the best twenty stories or the best twenty players and just rank them in appearance order. Uh, but for me, Joe Hart is a cracking story of how he ended up at Torino. And as I say I've not read the book on its merit, but Jean Francois Gillet has a chapter and uh, Joe Hart doesn't. So I ha- there is a little outtake part on Hart I've noticed. But uh, so the, yeah, the book on goalkeepers um, I'll probably be reading that in the new year. And then a shout out to Herbie Sykes who has been on uh, a Toro fan who's been on this pod before, who's wrote a lot of books on cycling. And he uh last year wrote a book on Juventus, the kind of definitive guide to Juventus. And he kind of ground me down into And I bit the bullet and bought his book, despite the fact it has a black and white spine and it says Juve all over it. But he, yeah, he claims there's a lot of Toro in that book. And it's certainly not, it's not a vanity project for Juventus. So I've bought that. I'm going to get my daughters because I'm very, um, uh what's the word <laughs> um petty is the the right word i'm gonna get my daughters to color the spine in granada uh so it looks like a taro book uh but yeah i've got herbie's but i, I did read the introduction to that which tells the story of a family of the mum supports taro the dad supports Juve, and what uh there's two boys who support uh one supports taro and supports Juve, which is quite quite a nice introduction to the book um but yeah we're going to talk about a bit about some of the books on Toro. Uh we're going to finish talking about the English language ones because obviously a lot of these are in Italian. But yeah I have uh, talked I've talked a lot there Rob, but you how many books on Toro do you have and uh the ones you you particularly recommend?
1: I th- I think there's probably not um I'm probably not able to Pitch, uh, pitching them all in one place as you can, but I've probably got quite a lot. Of, when I go to next, go to my mum's, I'll try and dig them out and, and send a photo over because I've actually, despite not actually being able to read Italian, uh, I have a number of <laughs> Taro books in Italian as well. Just ones which I've thought of, I uh, thought, oh, they'll be um, like maybe, maybe I'll have a, a spare day where I'll just see the learn Italian maybe if we've had a little bit okay. of time wow <laughs> well, well maybe if I had a, maybe that's the some, that's, a, that's some course you're doing I there thought, mate I, I, thought, I thought maybe technology would advance us where we get like some sort of matrix style uh, microchips where we just like I just download Italian as a skill but no like no whether I've got time to go through and maybe just, you see know, me just go and Google translate whilst I'm reading the bucket and and go mm-hmm. chapter by chapter like that Fortunately, uh, yeah uh Having a full-time job, sort of uh, <laughs> stops things like that happening. But yeah, I've, I've got a couple of um, English uh, to books. There's the uh, the day Italian football dies, which I think is probably uh, the the first one I probably uh, purchased, um, and that is a little bit of a um, a bit of an unusual one uh, in terms of the the author. So, it's, uh, uh, the day Italian football Died, uh, Tolino and the tragedy of Superga by Alexandra Manna and Mike Gibbs. Uh, I don't think they've got any uh, sort of attachment to Torino. It's a quite a, an old book which seems to have been publishing. Came out,
0: it came out in the late 90s and yeah, I've not... Yeah. I don't know. Um, I think she, she was... A, I got the impression she was a Toro fan. I've not read the book in a long time, but I thought that she was someone who knew the story of Torino as a Toro fan and then maybe... Um, yeah, I don't know how to help putting the book together in English. Or I don't, There may have even been a couple, but um yeah that book was was definitely the first one and I, yeah definitely got a feeling it came came out mid
1: to late nineties and then there's also one which i do have a copy of and wasn't easy wasn't very easy in getting getting hold of. i think it was actually pub- it is an english um book on toro but i think it was only published in Italy by uh toro news uh contrib- i think toro news might have had something to do with the production of it which is um the Torino FC legend by Andrea Roselli. Um, that one does have a preface by Acaro. <laughs> so um, I, I can imagine probably isn't too uh, controversial in terms of uh, some of the more recent history there. Um, but yeah, I, I, and well, I, I probably won't say, what, what I was reading, or people on my Twitter account may have also noticed, but on the on the way to Turin and finished off on the way back was. Um, uh, a book called uh, Passion in the piazza um can't remember the name of that author. can you repeat that
0: yeah more more on that in a minute <laughs> um but yeah i i would say Toro, like toro right for literature aren't Because 'cause you've got tragedy you've got a lot of um uh near misses uh in terms of uh, on the field kind of you've got your amsterdam you've got uh, you've got kind of legendary characters like moroni um yeah, that sort of stuff sells better and resonates better than a book about someone who's won all the time, which uh, th- those, those stories are less interesting. And when Torino have won something like the Scudetto in 76 or uh, have the kind of that, you know, the epic story of Il Grande Torino, it's just the amount of books just on Il Grande Torino is impressive. And I don't even think in a lifetime, I'm not sure you'll ever be able to read them all. Um, but I'll just say I'd kind of group them. There is a lot of very... Um good authors in Italy who've written books on Toro because they're Toro fans and happen to kind of be uh yeah novelists in their own right, so I think the best book I've ever read on Toro, and to my shame is the one I couldn't find I've, i think I lost it when I moved from Switzerland was a book by Giuseppe Colicchio who it's called Ecce Toro He's also written books a series of books kind of Torino is a Casimir and about living in Turin, about what it means to be from Turin and which are very good. And there's a lot of Toro in as well. Um, But that book I felt just gave uh, a real insight to what it was to be a Toro fan. I remember really enjoying it, but it's probably been 15 years ago since I've read it. Um, Then you have uh, Massimo Gramellini, who is a long time journalist for La Stampa who had a column I used to have, I don't know if he still does because La Stampa's behind the paywall now. So I never never read it anymore. But he used to have a, a kind of a column on Toro every Monday, which would talk a bit about the matches, but in a kind of very um, alternative way, so to speak. He would just take a theme of the match and, um, yeah, then kind of bring in a lot of cultural references, that kind of thing. But it's kind of a collective. Um, those collective comments are in a book, Coronata da Legare, which it's probably quite old now, but that was a very good book as well. And then probably the book that another book that really covers the DNA of Toro is by Marco Casado, who's another um, well-known author, uh, Belly Edenati, which is beautiful and damned. Um, I just remember that being being a really good book, not just talking about the football, but just talking about um, yeah the life and the life of being a Toro fan. And also Qualikia as well. He's I think he has kind of translated a lot of quite well-known books from American authors as well. So yeah, you've got these kind of very well-written, great prose, um, and, you know, authors are able to kind of, yeah, explain in a very, in a very unique style, what it means to, to be, a, to be a Torah fan. And then I would say there's a lot of books about the cult players. So there's one of them I bought last, no, last trip to tune was about Dennis Law and Joe Baker. And there's a fair bit on them. I've, I've, not managed to read the book on them just yet but it's yeah kind of one of the 400 books by the side of my bed I I, I kind of need to get through and, and then I buy another book and it gets sent <laughs> into the back of the queue but but yeah there's there's uh Lauren Baker there's a few biographies I've got so Araldo Pecci from the Scudetto winning team Giorgio Farini's biography Um but of course I think the Torino play who's most interesting to read about is Gigi Moroni. So there's two I've got on Moroni. One is like a cartoon style book, tells his the story of his life in, in a cartoon, um, which I, I'm not m- meant to make that sound like a children's book. It's far from it. But yeah, it's a kind of illustrated book. And then the other one, uh, La Farfalla Granata by Nando Dele-, Dele Chiesa, is a brilliant, absolutely brilliant, the definitive biography on on, on Moroni. Um, and then another... Maybe less cult player, but I think I mentioned on the pod last time I went to Torino, I bought Alessandro Gatzi's book just before bumping into Alessandro Gatzi. And he's one of the few, I don't know, maybe you've got a Rolando Bianchi or Omar Okudori book somewhere, but he's one of the few recent Torino players who, uh, having just retired, he bought out a book. And his book, I think there's been a few books by English players similar, which is a bit of a self-deprecating look at his career. Um, it's a good book, it's very interesting. But what I felt like is by the time he got to Torino, he it was almost like his publisher said you've got to finish the book a bit, and it felt like Torino being the highlight of his career a certain professionally. It just felt like he anecdotally there was less about Torino. And I don't know if it's because Gatsy um I know he's had some roles recently with Torino FC as well. So I just I don't know, but he was his time at Bari and his kind of early career at Treviso and stuff it was probably felt more interesting because he went into a bit more detail and the the, the Toro stuff a little bit was a little bit less anecdotal um so yeah and then as I said there's loads and loads of books on Il Grande Torino and there's all of these books that come out every Christmas on 501 questions about Torino and stuff like this and Rob um where do you think I've got all my quiz questions from for next week no. Not many of them, but they're, if they're in Italian, they're, they're definitely going to struggle. So yeah, so no, there's loads, and now I think we were just going to talk because it's an English language pod about some of the English language ones. So you've mentioned two. Uh, I've got a few more if people are interested. Jerry Hitchens' biography uh, was written by his son a few years ago, um, and that's got some good stuff on on Toro and just about you know the, you've got the story of Lauren Baker and Greaves and the players who didn't really adapt to Italy, where Hitchens was the opposite. Hitchens played for four or five different clubs and really embraced uh, living in Italy. So there's some good stuff there. Uh, Dennis Law there's a few books about I've never really found anything where uh, he go he himself goes into too many details about his time at Torino, but um, it's, uh, it's, uh, certainly some books on law. I think we've got a shout out to Dominic Bliss and his excellent book on Egri Erbstein. We have covered that in the past... Pardon if you haven't listened to it. It's it, it's in our archives from around the time of Superga. Last year we did the special with Dominic. That I think that's an exceptional piece of work and research. And then um, there's a few books you yeah, I know you're going to talk about that maybe Toro aren't the centre point of the book, but The Miracle of Castel de Sangro by uh, Jeremy Guinness. Toro were a Serie B team when, Castel de, when that story of Castel de Sangro was... Um, I guess, taking place. So if you want to get an understanding of Serie B in mid nineties, that's quite good. It's quite, it's quite interesting. I read that book when it came out, like should guess was late nineties and devoured it and loved it. And then I read that book during lockdown a few years ago and I would say you should never go back, but I realized how much of the book was written for an American audience or a, that's not really very fair to say American audience, but a non-specialized audience Um which i hadn't realized the first time first time i read it
1: and um yeah i so think you can you can yeah, sort yeah. of um for, I, I think i read it relatively recently too whether it was the second time i read it or not i can't remember but you almost feel like there's um portions in the book where um i don't think at the end of the 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 author's relationship with the sort of directors of the castengro obviously turns sour towards the end of uh the season and he seems quite incredulous as to why that might be, but then you sort of go back and you can sort of, well, it's probably because of that. and It's probably because of that. Um, so yeah, maybe there's maybe not uh, a lot of self sort of uh, self look, looking back at and, and wondering whether, whether that was the, the, the reason that relationship broke down.
0: Yeah. And then you wanted to mention another book, didn't you?
1: Yeah. So did one you of book? The, yeah. So uh, one of the first books I wrote, uh, I wrote. I, I read on Italian football was uh, was Calcio by John Foot, which we, I'd, uh, I was telling Peter whilst I was. John Firth probably one of the uh, reasons that I uh, went on to do a history degree uh, at university. And was uh, I went to London as part whilst I was uh, doing my A levels to hear a talk from uh, from John Foot just on general Italian history, and he mentioned at the end of that that he was having a, a book published on Italian football. And sort of after that, sort of purchased it, and yeah, it's one of those books which, again, it is a—it's almost like a definitive history on um, on Italian football stats from sort of back in back in the sort of nineteenth century, and and then goes up up, up to I think it—I'm not sure if he's done a, a re a reissue or a new edition, but I think it ends just before the 2006 World Cup. Uh, the edition I had definitely did. Um, but yeah, no, again, not a huge section on Toro, but enough on uh, a, a, quite a significant chunk on, on Grande Torino, obviously, as well.
0: Yeah, and you've written a book on Toro as well, haven't you, Rob?
1: Uh, I mean, that's probably stretching it a little bit, but yeah, that, that might be a Freudian slip there. I, do, I have actually written a book. It's an e-book, um, uh, which is available on Amazon. I, I think I get a, I get around about £1.19 every time somebody uh, mistakenly purchases it. Um, but yeah, no, it's um, I, I basically had the idea of I, it might even, may have been from from yourself um, and, and and sort of wanting to have uh, um, just something that I could say oh well I wrote this book about Torino and something to sort of go on from from there. So I looked at the the Giampalo uh, Ventura years um, and Giampalo. John <laughs> Piero, sorry John um, Piero of a jury is again, thinking, thinking of the people mate, um, and yeah, thinking about his um, his Palo taro, sort of obviously the way that he took over in um, the, the title of the book's from, from Serie B to Bill Bell, which obviously goes from uh, how he took us from promotion and sort of all the way to Europe and Uh, Using a little bit, it's a bit of a cheat because obviously I was doing a blog at the same time, so I was using a lot of match reports. Then it's one of the things I think if I had the time um, and the sort of um, willingness to sort of go back and and actually sort of it would be, I think it would be an interesting time period actually, like say with the with the Amsterdam book to to go and do a deep dive and have the the contacts and the ability to actually go and um, interview the players. who were who were the key sort of uh, uh, catalysts in, at that period as well? Like you say, this uh, the the Cairo period has not been particularly um, great for success, but Ventura has by far had the had the most success in a, in a derby win and and uh, getting us uh, into the Europa League and into into the Europa League knockout stages as well. So uh, yeah, it'd be very interesting to to hear some of the stories from that time. You know, sort of a lot of the players. Maybe fell out with him, and I know Bianchi, Bianchi being one of them, and um, other players wasn't his biggest fan. But yeah, it was quite, quite a bit of success in, in that period. So yeah, it would be it would be interesting to to hear more of those stories. But yeah, if you if you do want to hear maybe if you're a new Tory fan, working around then it might be, uh, a li- might be quite helpful with fill in, fill in some gaps between between what happened in that era.
0: All right, and then yeah, the book you were reading much to my disgust on the uh, flight to Turin. We weren't sitting next to each other, thankfully. was I wrote a book uh, called Passion in the Piazza in 2006. Essentially, it was inspired. I was living in Turin. It was inspired by the protests and, the, I guess, the uh, fall of Torino culture when, when we folded um, and then when we became Torino Football Club and a little bit of that vacuum of the summer in, in the middle. So that's kind of the central... Um, central story and then yeah I said I've not read this book my own book in a long time but yeah kind of it seeks to tell a little bit the history of Torino but it's it's essentially about the fall of Torino that kind of essentially a a kind of financial cancer that was you know from uh, Borsano to Caleri to the various bad presidents we had in the mid to late 90s to uh, basically it was just waiting waiting to go bankrupt and we eventually did uh, so it kind of tra- it traces that it traces the fall of Torino from from Amsterdam, from the Coppa Italia win into um, and yeah you know, I I leave that book as Cairo's taking over so um, so I've yeah I wrote that book as a bit of a passion project there was um, I wouldn't say I did it quickly but yeah it's I I had um, yeah I had kind of reasons to to get it done in a, in a relatively short time frame. As I said, I've kind of the book. The book went out, people some people bought it. It's um, I don't even know if it's still available to be honest, apart from maybe secondhand, but yeah. What I decided very groggily at breakfast in Shirin, I came down one morning and I said, Yeah, I'm gonna, I think I'm gonna look at either rewriting the book, um, because there's definitely things to improve. And when you go back and look at something you did 18 years ago or nearly 20 years ago, it's yeah, it's sometimes, it's sometimes a bit bit hard to do and i think i think the book could be improved oh it definitely could improve but yeah so i think a project for 2024 is um is to release a new book on toro in english uh it certainly won't be a definitive guide to toro or anything like that it'll it'll look at uh a re-edit essentially of the original book and then maybe trace the the Cairo years since and and have a little bit a look at what was promised versus what was delivered um so you partly inspired that Rob by bringing that book uh to Shirin with you
1: there again just my little my uh little uh, contribution to Toro fans English English uh speaking Toro fans worldwide to uh so yeah, give them another another option on the on the bookshelf. Uh, on am I'm sorry, books to to purchase. Does that yeah, does that include a p- percentage of the profits as well? then, yeah. I means.
0: Well, yeah, uh, one step at a time. But yeah, it's something <laughs> that was, it's something that I've managed to f- I've managed to find in the word file on an old hard disk, and so uh, yeah, there's no excuses now. So, so yeah, something I just well. Rob, you'll certainly be involved in the creative process of the structure of the book, and uh, you've signed yourself up to proofreading it and being yeah. a sounding board. So, you've got a lot of work as well in in the year of your wedding as well. So, um... well,
1: one of the um, one of the uh, sort of positives of having a, a teacher as a fiance is that she'll probably be on board and in, in proofreading and, and checking the book as well. So, there are going to be absolutely no mistakes in this book, mate. The, the QA process is going to be incredible.
0: Well, there we go. But, yeah, sometime in 2024, there'll be a, a new book on Toro coming your way. So, yeah, people have actually reached out to ask about the old book, and I would just recommend, personally,
1: waiting for the new one. Um, it is still available know. on Amazon, I did check. But, yeah, it okay. might be uh, – yeah, could be – again, if if you can't wait, it's not sorry, not particularly expensive. I I enjoy that. I know, Peter, I know Peter's maybe – a little bit uh, self deprecating there, but I, I I enjoyed it. It was sort of it's not a it's not a huge book, so you can read it in sort of maybe maybe in just a couple of hours. And uh, it really gives you a, a sense of uh, the chaos that, that Torino were in in, in the summer of two thousand five. And it's I, I know obviously I'm probably more of a, a, a Cairo um uh, Apologist than the most, but it, it does make you wonder if had Carreiro not come on the scene, then then what would have happened to Tori? the Likely, it is they probably would have had to start the season in Serie Serie C, um, and yeah, whether we would have, you, you would imagine at some point somebody would have would have taken the team over, and and we would have we would have got back into Serie, A but you can never really make those guarantees, unfortunately, and uh yeah very very, very interesting book for a time period just before I became a fan and uh yeah just a, another example of um of Peter's pettiness, which I might not want to ruin for the new book am I allowed to mention what you who you don't refer to in the entirety of the book peter
0: i think I think people can uh probably guess who i don't refer to by their name <laughs> but uh, i i i did like the story that Mesa told us about a a Tarot fan in Turin who. Um, has every Pinini sticker book going back to the 70s, but always sticks to Juve players, um, puts their stickers in upside down, which I think even rivals my pettiness. So, um, but anyway, yeah, I'll be more, more on that in the future. Um, Empoli, Rob, uh, before we go, uh, so we've got these two home games, which there's no way we're getting six points from them. We know Taro, uh, I think Empoli and Udinese will both come to frustrate, they've both had away wins this season that. That you know, not sort of way when Staro get uh Empoli won at Napoli, they have won at Milan. Um, Empoli haven't played as we record, I think they're playing Lecce. Um, this evening, uh, Rob, our record against Empoli at home it's embarrassing. One three, this is in Serie A, one three, drawn four, lost four. So, Empoli have a better record in Turin than we do against them. Mm-hmm. Um uh, recent years, yes. Yeah, so you were there for the. I think we outplayed them last season, but only drew one-one. Yeah. One. Luke it scored late on, and that followed up the season before where we absolutely smashed them for half an hour. We're 2 0 up. Sango gets a ridiculous red card for a last-man foul, and we ends up drawing two-two. Uh, we've only won one of the last six at home against them. Um, so we we owe Empoli. It's a they're, they're kind of while well, Paolo Zanetti's gone, he kept. Kind of winning matches with bad teams against us, um, yeah. It's a game we need to we need to kind of reverse this kind of run. Uh, Empoli have always been a bit of a bogey team. Um, so what? How are you feeling about the game? What lineup would you like to see rather than the one you
1: predict we'll see? It was just looking back at the uh, the Torres side who, who last beat Empoli at home was um, it was a Boxing Day game, which was a very short-lived Serie A experiment and we won 3-0. Um I, I I'm I'm quite confident actually. I do think obviously the last two with very good performances, Sosuelo and Atalanta, very probably our two best performances this season have, have come in successive home games. And given how we struggled so much at home last season, I'm hoping maybe that's a bit of a, a turning fortune there in and Zapata uh is able to sort of bully the, the defence and might be able to get a um, a positive result. Um I could see Gigi starting um and that maybe frees up Tameze uh into the midfield or maybe even give Tameze a bit of a rest. Um I would like to see at some point as well I'd like to see um Rodriguez giving a, a given a go as left wing back a little bit of extra quality a natural left footer rather than somebody who's just constantly go cut inside. Um, I think Rodriguez on the left wing-back position um, and then Bellanova on the right just constantly just running in crosses for two strikers up front. That seems like quite a good recipe for at some point. Um, Empoli are going to be not going to cope with that. Um, so yeah, so I think I've almost given myself a team there. So uh, Milinkovic, Savic, Gigi, Bongiorno, Zima. So Zima playing play in the centre, Rodriguez would play as the left centre-back. Um, uh, Bon-G-
0: Bongiorno as left center
1: back. Oh, sorry, yeah. Bon-Gior- Bongiorno left center back. Um, Zima as a center, a central back three. Rodriguez left wing back. Balanova right wing back. Then midfield three of Vlasic, Linetti, and Illich. Uh, with I'm gonna go with you going to go Carimo and go Caramo and Zapata up front.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it was the battery. He's not giving us two good back-to-back games. It was kind of... I thought he was a bit lu- not lucky to stay on at in I think, if we'd had an alternative on the bench. I, I was half thinking, when I saw the three subs come on, I was half thinking Zapata might come off. Yeah, I like the idea of either resting Rodriguez or playing him left wing back. Um, I think Leonetti has to come back in um, just because the midfield works better. Uh, with, I think uh, Richie's still kind of Potentially not 100% fit either. So, um, about wanting to have been too harsh on him earlier in the pod. But, um, yeah, maybe there'd be a bit of turnover between the Empley and Udinese games in midfield. But, yeah, I like. Juric was a bit cautious about Gigi coming back for 90 minutes or starting matches. But I I think Gigi might start the Udinese game if, um, yeah, it, it, unless there's some kind of big injury crisis rather than the Empoli game. Um, and yeah, I too would like to see something a bit different in attack. Maybe just give... Maybe, maybe, sometimes players could be more effective from the bench as well. Maybe it's even a Bellanova coming off the bench and having that pace in the last half an hour. I didn't think he was great uh, against Frozinone. I think he went back to type a little bit. Um, and I'd break up the Vlasic and, and, and Stabry if they were playing Vlasic and Karamo with uh with Zapata, so uh, prediction, I can't I'm either, I can't decide between a nil-nil, which would be another nil-nil, so it'd be Frosinone nil-nil, it would be Empoli nil-nil and then it would be Mesa versus Rob nil-nil in the quiz next week Um, or whether Toro will just do a very professional job and then will decide to mess up against Udinese, so you know what, I'm going to be tactical, you make your prediction and I'll go in the back of you
1: I'll go, um Toro two, Empoli one. All right, I'm going Toro
0: nil, Empoli nil. Ruin your Saturday evening before Christmas, um, and then we'll go and smash Udinese uh, a week after. So I'm yeah. probably more comfortable.
1: I'm more comfortable about the Empoli game than the Udinese
0: game. Yeah, I think that free Christmas game might be a little bit weird. It's also it's at the for the UK fans, it's at a yeah, horrible two, slot. Yeah, of, two yeah.
1: two p.m. kick off.
0: So we're going to struggle to watch that through uh, normal normal means, anyway. But yeah, Empoli is it's a strange game. It's the big Saturday night game is is Torino against Empoli. I yeah, part of me thinks we will win. It's uh, I'm just for the tactical prediction reason. I'll go for a nil nil and then at least have something to fall back on.
1: Just uh, yeah, just one last mention as well because um, people people seem to be mocking me when i asked on Twitter as well. But they've given away free Granada Santa hats for the Odinese game. So if anybody. Uh... Maybe he's going to the game and doesn't want the Toro Santa. Although, I mean, I did realise at the point that like, this got to me back in England, it would probably be January, so it's going to be it's going to be eleven months before I could potentially wear it. But I I, I like my it's one of the rare bit of Toro merchandise which might actually fit. Although I do have quite a bit of a big head, so, so
0: you, uh, yeah. Straight. Well, literally and uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, literally um, and metaphorically, ugly, but um, could you not have bought a Toro hat when you were there?
1: No, not a Santa hat. Could you a not genuine buy a Tar- Santa hat?
0: Could you not have bought a Taro Santa hat? Was that not in the little Christmas box no. we're selling at Laurinician? No, no,
1: no, no, no. It was a genuine, it was a woolly hat like the one I was wearing. All right.
0: Well, if, yeah, maybe someone nice, a nice, kind lister who, uh, not yeah. Mesa, not Mesa, because he's not going to the match, will, uh, we'll bring you the hat. Back. I'm
1: sure, I mean, I imagine they'll probably appear on the uh, Torino website. I don't, I've not well, seen it there so far. But I think I, you're,
0: uh, yeah, I don't think your fiance will mind if you go to Turin like, uh,
1: What, two days yeah, before Christmas?
0: Literally, well, literally hours before Christmas? Yeah, uh, If exactly, you miss, yeah. Miss, miss, miss your flight, you get to stay in Torino. Then you could well, go to Florence and watch the Fiorentina game. There you go. I might
1: as well <laughs> stay in for the Napoli game as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, I'll do that, mate. If you want that hat, <laughs> listeners, no, <laughs> let's not help Rob out here. If Rob wants the hat, he needs to go to Turin.
1: Obviously, don't are right enough.
0: On that note, uh, yeah, we're back with two pods next week, the quiz and then a short review of the 0-0 draw with Empoli. And in the meantime, for Tadolo.
1: For